Jesus. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. I'll be reading verse 14 through 25. Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, And all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house. And he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Let us pray. Father, your hand is mighty, mighty to save and mighty to judge. We ask you, as we've tasted of your saving grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would remember the severity of your judgment as well. Not because we might experience it for those who are in Christ, but because we need to fear you as the God who will bring judgment. Teach us what you want us to learn from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes, The Bible presents to us ideas, concepts, and stories that aren't savory to us. Mostly, they have to do with judgment. A large portion of the Bible has to do with judgment. And we are obligated, as people who accept the whole counsel of God's Word, to give our attention to it when it comes into our path. We have to listen to what God says about judgment. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 27 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And it goes on in verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We are to be sobered by the power of our God in judgment. I think Hebrews 10 captures the experience of hard-hearted Pharaoh who was exposed to the truth of God's word by repeated presentations of it through Moses and Aaron, who was exposed to the truth of God's power through the plagues that were dropped on him. And yet we see someone who is hardened of heart, unwilling to yield to the judge of the world. Judgment looms for our world. It may not feel that way. It may not feel that way, especially to those who live in a level of prosperity as is often occurring in the West. We expect things to continue as they have, although there are minor interruptions in the grand scheme of things to our economy or to food supply. Generally speaking, we have it good. And it seems as though things will just continue as they always have. Sometimes people mock the idea of judgment because it just seems like it is impossible for that to happen. It seems like things are going to continue on. For Egypt, it would seem like things would continue on for them, that they would hold the Israelites enslaved, that they would maintain their dominance. Some mock God's judgment. Isaiah chapter 5 says, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with the cart ropes, who say, let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. They taunt the Lord as they live their lives of sin. Let him bring his word. The same thing happens in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 15. Behold, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. It just seems as if things will continue as they always have, and there is no real threat of judgment. They mock God's judgment in Ezekiel chapter 12, verses 22 through 28. Son of man, what is this proverb that you have about the land of Israel, saying, the days grow long and the, every vision comes to nothing? Tell them, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will put an end to this proverb, and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel. But say to them, the days are near, and the fulfillment of every vision. For there shall be no more any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. For I am the Lord. I will speak the word that I will speak, and it will be performed. It will no longer be delayed. But in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, behold, they of the house of Israel say the vision that he sees is for many days from now, and he prophesies of times far off. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord God, none of my words will be delayed any longer, but the word that I speak will be performed, declares the Lord God. It's easy to make a mockery of God's word. It's easy to say it will never come to pass when things are good. Peter acknowledges that some mock the pending judgment of God. 
and think that it's never going to come. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 4-10 through 10 says, They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Judgment is coming. One of the reasons that we look at judgment in the Old Testament is to give us confidence that judgment is going to still come in the future. You look back at the flood in order to know that there is going to be judgment in the future. History is being funneled toward the great day of the Lord when he is going to bring his justice to earth. Jesus describes it as a day when he is going to separate the sheep from the goats Matthew 25, verse 46, is the conclusion of that sifting of all people. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Judgments, like the ones that we see in Exodus, a judgment over the whole nation, is meant to remind us that God has the power and authority to exercise his justice on this earth. Those who are not aligned with God in his ways will feel his just wrath. The Lord is not afraid to show his absolute power over the world by putting world powers in their place. We live a lifespan of 80 or so years, and in that time, you may think that these nations are unassailable, But from the mindset of God, all of these nations are a drop in the bucket. They go up in the scales like dust. And they will face God's judgment. Revelation 6 says it's not just the nations, it's not just the mighty and the powerful, but it's both the great and the small that will face God's judgment. Revelation 6, verse 15 and 17 says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? We're helped in seeing these historic judgments and the plagues that we might learn from them, tremble before the Lord for his might. And if we're not ready to face God on that day of judgment, it helps us to get ready 
sobers us. This story of the water of the Nile turning to blood is the first of ten plagues that strike Egypt. And we'll take this week and focus on this one, the Nile turning to blood, and we'll learn from it about the way that God judges. The first thing that we learn is that God's judgment comes against the disobedient. God's judgment comes against the disobedient. When disobeying the express will of God is the standard operating procedure of your life, then you will find God to be your opponent and not your friend. And with God as your opponent, you're not fighting with somebody who is able to be overcome. He is always victorious. And he won't be unfair in his judgment of you. He will be absolutely just. But it is the righteous standard of God, his absolute moral law, that stands completely unassailable. One pastor puts it this way, it's amazing how people can affirm that God is a God of order and absolute precision in everything he does in the natural world, yet believe he, uncons- he is unconcerned about the moral world. The scientist in the laboratory operates on the basis of his, that his chemical mixtures are not going to violate a known truth and blow the building to bits. The astronauts who blast off into space count on the absolute immutability and accuracy of scientific laws. If God is a God of law and order in the natural realm, he is not going to say, oh, just do your own thing. Believe anything you want. Such inconsistency is absurd. He's right. The Lord has an absolute standard that is as fixed as the laws of physics. And when someone refuses to submit to God in his ways, who will not bend his heart in humility before the Lord, you'll find that violating God's law comes with the consequence of his judgment. Pharaoh experiences this. Pharaoh has been described as a great ruler. He's a mighty king. And God has described him as a man whose heart is hardened. There in verse 14, he tells Moses what Moses can't see, the inside of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. His heart is obstinate. It is stubborn. And while Exodus is a book that unfolds for us the absolute sovereignty of God, even God's sovereignty in an amazing way over the hearts of men, as he says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart, man is still clearly held to account for his hardened heart. The responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God go hand in hand. Man is completely responsible. Pharaoh's heart is hardened, God says. But then he assigns obligation and responsibility to him when he says he refuses to let the people go. He is refusing to submit to the power and authority of God, to his word. More specifically, the crime that 
is being committed here is not just a general disobedience of God's word, but a specific unwillingness to submit to God's will for his people. See, what God says is the crime. He refuses to let the people go. Letting the people of God go has not been obeyed. In verse 16, it says, But so far you have not obeyed. Not obeyed what? Well, the command, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. It's the mistreatment of the people of God and the hindering of their worship that particularly provokes God to his wrath against Pharaoh. This theme is something that you see really throughout Scripture. When God's people are made to sin, are led to not worship the Lord, the person who does that is held to high account. Matthew chapter 18, verse 5 through 6, Jesus brings this up. He says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And when Jesus has that great judgment of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. This is the crime that God will bring his just vengeance. It's a crime about how the people of God have been treated. And when Pharaoh refuses to obey God and let the people go, he faces the wrath of God. And judgment falls on the land of Egypt. It's our penchant to think about the awful acts of others, to think about how other people sin how other people disobey God. That's the easy thing. We all have that kind of knack for identifying the sin in other people. Say, well, that person's not obeying God. That person's flagrantly disobeying God's word. But the real call that God has given to us is take the plank out of our own eye before we take the speck out of another's. And so it's easy to see how Pharaoh in his hardened state is flagrantly disobeying God. But the real call is for us to look at our own hearts through the mirror of God's word and see, is there any part of our life where we are flagrantly disobeying the word of God? We're called as disciples to follow Christ in all ways, to renounce really our lives and to surrender our life wholly and completely unto him. As his disciple, where is it that you fall short of obeying him? This is not to say that you'll face his wrath and condemnation like Pharaoh has. 
But it's a call nonetheless to take seriously the word of God. When he speaks, he expects it to be obeyed. The second idea we learn about the judgment of God is not this that God judges those who are disobedient, but that God's judgment is revelatory of his character. God's judgment is revelatory of his character. It means that it reveals something about him. God tolerates no idols. We all know that if we've read the Ten Commandments. The very first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. That's really a fundamental aspect of our God, that he does not tolerate rivals. No lies, no deceptions, no misrepresentations of himself will be tolerated. He is absolute when he says that he alone is God. It's consistent with his name, Yahweh, I am who I am. And the conclusion really from that is that he is the only one like that. There is no one else. That's the great Shema. The Lord your God is one. He alone stands as God and creator of all things. He will not be manipulated to be other than he is. And as the God who is, he's determined to reveal himself, to show who he is, to show what he's like. And so far in the Bible, as you've read the book of Genesis, you know a little bit about what he's like. He's the creator of all things. He's the one who spoke and everything came into existence. The one who said, let there be light, and there was light. The one who created dry land and pooled the waters together, who put the stars in the sky and the sun and the moon for seasons. He's the one also who made the promise to Abraham, the one who spoke to Abraham that he would be blessed and all the nations of the world would be blessed in him. He's the one who is keeping the promise to Abraham and his offspring. Do you learn that he's the creator, the promise maker, and the promise keeper? Some of the elements of God or attributes of God that we don't particularly like to hear about is also his wrath. The book of Exodus reveals to us something of God's severe judgment. Though this really isn't new to us, because Genesis gives us the flood where every living thing on earth was destroyed except for those creatures in the ark. We're told of Sodom and Gomorrah where God in a moment wipes out that wicked, those wicked cities. Those judgments are often downplayed or altogether dismissed. And we dismiss the character of God and his wrath when we say only that God is love, that's a true statement, but that's not all the Bible says about who he is. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We also have to accept that. And it's worth noting that Jesus affirms the truthfulness of those great and catastrophic judgments that God brought on Sodom and Gomorrah and in the flood. Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 36 through 39, describing the future judgment, says, Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. 
and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus calls us to think back to that great flood and that judgment to know that the judgment of the future is to come. He also affirms the truthfulness of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Matthew eleven twenty three and 24, he says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. These are real judgments. And they reveal something to us of the nature of God, that He does not tolerate sin. These judgments are revealing to us that God is a judging God. That's who He is. If you were to be asked, what is God like? We would most likely prefer to describe God as loving and kind and merciful and good and wise. And those are all true things. But to be accurate, we have to include that God is a God of judgment. You might describe your pet It's furry and cute and soft and purrs real nicely. Gives birth to the cutest kittens. But if you fail to include that it has stripes and eyes that see right to your soul and can leap the length of a school bus and, oh right, thirsts for blood, and has fangs about this long, you're leaving out some important information about your pet. Our God is not a tameable God. We leave him to be who he is, and he executes judgments like the flood and like Sodom and Gomorrah and like turning an entire river to blood. And the purpose for this is in verse 17. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. He wants to be known for this power that he possesses to bring judgment against sin. In fact, as you trace this through the plague narratives, which you can do with me if you turn to chapter 8, verse 10, you see why God does the plague of frogs. Chapter 8, verse 10, and he said tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. Or chapter 8, verse 22 But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth. Or chapter 9, verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. In verse 16, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 29, 
so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, particularly verse 2, that you may know that I am the Lord. And at the conclusion of this, with the great plague of the death of the firstborn, chapter 12, verse 12, Yahweh concludes, I am Yahweh. Who is Yahweh? The creator, the promise maker, the promise keeper, and the judge. He wants to be known for all those things. He has no real competitors. And he will judge those who think they can compete with him. Is there anything that we are to know otherwise than God is creator, promise maker, promise keeper, and judge? It's always important as we study a book like this, in, like Exodus in the Old Testament, which is only the second book in the Bible, is there anything else we need to know? Oh, we need to know that God is judge. Yes, we need to know that. But what else do we need to know? That's not all. There's an interesting account in Mark chapter 2, verse 10. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. You know the story as the crowds have gathered around Jesus in the home. And it's so full that nobody can even come in through the door. And four friends come carrying their paralyzed friend. And as they want to get to Jesus, they have to tear a hole in the roof to get to him. And they lay their friend down in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the people there are thinking that Jesus is blaspheming because he's claiming equal authority with God. But in Mark chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus says this, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, take up your mat, and walk. God did the plagues, performed the plagues on Egypt so that they would know he is Yahweh, the God capable of judging and delivering his people from slavery. What else does he want us to know? He wants us to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he gave a sign for it by having Jesus make that man walk. We need to know all of who God is. He is a God who has authority on earth to forgive sins sins. What else do we have to know? John chapter 2 verses 6 through 11 is an interesting account. God turns the Nile River into blood and judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt for not obeying him. But do you recall what Jesus' first miracle was as he goes to the wedding in Cana? He takes the water and he turns it to wine, a feast, a celebration The Savior has come. The King is here. It's a testimony to God's graciousness in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you only describe your pet as something that ferociously devours, you have not done adequate justice to it. Nor can we only describe God as a God who ferociously devours His enemies. He's also a God who gave His Son to rescue sinners from the judgment that they rightly deserve. We need to know 
God for all that he is, a God who gave good news in his Son. We know that God brings judgment against the disobedient. We know that God is a judge who brings his wrath in order to reveal the fullness of his character. And then thirdly, we find that God's judgment overpowers the powerful. God's judgment overpowers the powerful. One of the annoying elements of studying the book of Exodus is the commentator's insistence on providing naturalistic explanations to the seemingly supernatural miracles that occur. For example, one of the common explanations of the staff turning to a snake is that it's just a snake that is kind of paralyzed and you throw it to the ground and it starts wiggling around again. With this Nile turning to blood, one of the common explanations of it is that this isn't a a true miracle. It's more a display of God's providence. Some people would hold that this is not the Nile water really turning to real blood. They're suggesting rather that it is a natural occurrence of a flood that happened upstream. and The water rushes down the lower Nile, and with it brings sediment that's red, and so it makes the water look like blood. Or it could be an algae bloom, red algae, which if you look at pictures of that, it does look a lot like blood. But what is happening here is there a naturalistic explanation that there was some flood that just brought red sediment down the Nile and made it look like blood and disturbed the oxygen levels, and so the fish died and the decaying fish made it stink. Is that what happened? Well, certainly God has power over nature to accomplish his purposes. Psalm 148, verse 7 and 8 says, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. Certainly affirm God's supreme power over nature, but is that what's going on here? I don't think so, because from the start, God has been promising that he would show his signs and wonders in Egypt. In this instance, the text knows nothing of red algae blooms or of red sediment, but it knows something of blood. Blood is a key theme through the whole of Scripture. Not just the look of blood, but the existence of it. And from the start, God is displaying His mighty power by doing things that really are incomparable. When Pharaoh responds to this, the water turning to blood, he doesn't say something like, come on, Moses and Aaron, I know how this works. The Nile floods every year, and it brings red sediment down. This is just a regular old flood. There's nothing special about your God. No, he calls out his magicians to try to turn water into blood, which, by the way, they are able to do, but not nearly on the scale that God has done it. And it's interesting that they are not able to take away the judgment. They're only able to make it a little bit worse. This is a direct judgment from God against 
Egypt and turning the Nile to blood. The Nile River, of course, as you would know, is the main artery of Egypt. Most of the um, settlements are right there along the banks of the Nile. It's where they were provided their fresh water, their food, both in the fish and in the fertile soil that the Nile provided in its annual floods that produced the agriculture. It provided transportation. And so with this huge portion of their life subsisting by the Nile, of course they made the Nile a god that they worshipped. Different gods get credited with association with the Nile. The most prominent one associated with the Nile is the god Happy. I think that's the way you pronounce it. H-A-P-I. And he was to be considered the god of the annual flooding of the Nile that would bring the rich topsoil down to where they could farm. Again, in Exodus 12, 12, God describes why he is doing these plagues. He says, as he describes that last and final plague, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. So when the Nile is turned to blood, it turns to a river not of life, but a river of death. And God shows that he is overpowering that which the Egyptians think is powerful. And it makes the gods of Egypt look impotent, like they're dead, like their blood has been shed and it fills up the Nile. God is always able to overpower that which looks powerful to us. We ought not to think that in our advanced civilization, we are more advanced than the Egyptians in their hearts. Our culture worships all kinds of things that look powerful to them. Money, transportation, energy, agriculture. All of these things may not have the name of a God behind them, but all of these things garner the worship of Americans' hearts, the stock market. God can take those things that look so powerful, even the mighty military power of the most powerful nations, and make them as nothing in an instant. God's judgment overpowers that which looks powerful to us. We ought not to be surprised if one day, even in our lifetime, God God sees fit to strike the heart of what our nation worships, to take it away. And will we be willing to accept that there is a God mightier than the nation that we live in. And we worship him, not the things that are provided to us through our mighty nation. God's judgment reveals that he overpowers the powerful. Finally, God's judgment is righteous in its application. 
God's judgment is righteous in its application. Why did God choose this as the first plague that afflicted Egypt? Why the Nile? Well, perhaps in part because of what we've just described, the central location of life surrounding the Nile, but also recall what the Nile River had been used for earlier in Exodus. It was the place where the infant Hebrew babies were thrown into in order to murder them. This is not a random administering of judgment by God. He wisely strikes and he justly strikes. Notice in verse 19, as the instructions being given to Aaron about what is going to happen, it says, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. This is not arbitrary. It's not random judgment. It is absolutely commensurate with the crime that has been committed. Revelation chapter 16, verses 3 through 7, it looks forward to the future judgment, the bold judgments. The second angel, it says in Revelation 16, 3, poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. And here's why. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Did you notice why the judgment of blood came or is coming? It's because the blood of saints and prophets had been spilled, and so God gives blood to them to drink. God does the same with Egypt as he strikes them. That's what it says in verse 25. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Yes, he uses his intermediaries, Moses to speak to Pharaoh, Aaron to hold out his hand over the waters, but ultimately who struck the Nile? It was God. He's the one who did it. And the results of that are horrific to think about. A river of blood, all of the pools of water, the marshes, and then also just the cisterns that would have been holding drinkable water turned to blood. So horrible was it that the land stank because of the rotting fish that died in the Nile. What's our response to something like this? Well, I think we see what the response ought not to be. Pharaoh was able to have his magicians concoct a 
small miracle in turning their water to blood. They probably got the water just as the other Egyptians got it by digging close to the Nile and getting some fresh water. And by their secret hearts, they do this small miracle. So what's Pharaoh's conclusion? Yahweh is nothing. You think how ridiculous that is because he's just turned the whole Nile to blood and the magicians just take a little water and turn that to blood as if that's comparable in some way. God struck the whole land and yet Pharaoh gets one little sniff that somebody might be able to do something like God and he thinks, I'm not going to listen to this Yahweh. He gets one reason, however illogical it is, and his heart is hardened, and he stubbornly turns away, and it says in verse 23, he did not take even this to heart. We have a whole world that testifies to the creative power of our God. The whole world sees it day after day, and you get one whiff of some theory, however illogical, that there's some other explanation for it, that genes randomly mutate and create higher forms of existence. And it happens over billions of years. And they get one whiff of it and say, God's not that great. We can come up with some other way that these things can come into existence. And the heart gets hardened and go into their house and don't take it to heart the whole world that's testifying of the great and mighty power of God. But what are the consequences of that? Verse 24, and all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. They miss out on that life vein, and they have to dig these dirty cisterns to get water to drink. That's a life lived without God, a life that doubles down on stubborn resistance to God and his ways. You end up having to miss the vibrant life source. You tap into these dirty cisterns. Pharaoh walked away unmoved. We often think, if someone could just see a miracle as grand as the Nile turning to blood, they would repent. It's not the way it works. Our hearts are so stubborn and set against us that even those miracles do not soften the heart. If a whole river turning to blood does not have the power to soften somebody's heart, what then does? The only power that can bring someone into a posture of humility before God and out from his judgment is the power of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only power. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, you know these words. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the only thing 
that can soften anyone's heart. You don't have to be concerned that you don't have a miracle of turning the Nile into blood in order to convince somebody. The only thing that will ever soften anybody's heart is the Spirit working through the proclaimed message of the gospel to bring people to repentance. That's the only thing. And we have that message. And if you know Christ, then you've tasted something of God's power that is even more powerful than the judgment of the Nile. It's the power to soften your hard heart to bring you to faith in Jesus Christ. It's the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross, not the blood that flowed through the Nile that brings salvation. Let's pray. Well, Father, we've known something of the hardness of heart that exists in Pharaoh because each of us before Christ had that hardness. And even if we saw those great miracles, we would not be convinced, but it was your gospel that saved us. The love that you have expressed for your people in Christ Jesus to rescue us from our sins that has humbled us, that has brought us really to our knees that we would acknowledge that you, the God, great God of wrath and of judgment, would pour all of that wrath out on your Son to save us. That message has softened us. We praise you that it has come to us. And Lord, we look at friends and neighbors and family and a world that is so hardened in heart, that is facing your wrathful judgment. Lord, help us to be faithful with the message of the gospel. And help us to be convinced that it is your power to save. There is nothing else. But Lord, we know not all will be saved. And you will be righteous in your judgment. But Lord, we deserve your judgment. It would be right for you to punish us for our sins. We deserve it. But we have one who pleads our cause, the Lord Jesus Christ, who interposed his own blood for us. And now it would not be right for you to punish us because you've already punished your son for our sins and we praise you for that good news. Help us to follow you wholeheartedly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.